0: You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager.
1: We're here.
2: Hey, everybody. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. It's almost Sunday. Welcome to all the things. I am Monique Bassan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also
1: known as Theology Mom.
2: Yes, and this is the show where we talk about all things related to God,
1: life, and the Bible from a historically Christian perspective. And helping us on the show tonight, as always, our official button pusher, Bob Bontrager. <laughs> He's really hopeful there with his Angels baseball shirt. Yeah, that one day we might come out of quarantine. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yes, Get the baseball season started. We we are missing our baseball games. Uh, I want to invite everyone to join us in the live chat there on YouTube, on the live stream. We see some of our friends already checking in. Laura's there. Keisha from Hotlanta.
2: Uh, <laughs> yes. But it's
1: probably not very hot there yet. Nope. Allison, Donna. Yes. Donna. Hello, everyone. We are excited for tonight's show and happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Sunday is coming. We want to invite all of you to click on that share button right now. That's the best way to uh, help support our efforts here is to share the show and to participate in the chat box. So I'm having a hard time with my hair. Tonight, looking at myself on the monitor there, I'm not really liking that.
2: Well, you know what? Okay, look, (laughs) people, it is quarantine, okay? And the reason why I was laughing so hard when we first started, because I was like, you know, I try with my own eyebrows, but they, like, soon, I'm going to be able to braid them. It's going (laughs) to be, like, four braids, because (laughs) I'm like, I can't go and get my eyebrows done. Folks, this is some serious stuff, like... (laughs)
1: I can't. I cannot even. So speaking of uh quarantine, uh we had a big adventure today.
2: I cannot even. I do not I do not even
1: <laughs> We have we have pictures, people. We have pictures. So this morning we got up at six fifteen AM and went and stood a line at Costco.
2: Yes, yes. Now if you look at the eyebrow directly, they are about <laughs> to become one with the eyelashes. Yes. <laughs> No makeup. it is six forty five in the morning,
1: yeah, so we stood in line for three hours before they opened, and it took us about an hour and a half in the shop because the the line was really long, mm-hmm. but this was the line to go in
0: mm-hmm.
1: Monique and I were there. We were like about number twenty five or so, like we were really at the front of the line, yes, but it's like after seven fifteen, yeah, your chances
2: like those people back there they weren't getting no toilet paper. <laughs> They weren't getting rice. They, no, they they had high hopes. They, let's be real. And someone real. comes
1: out and yells at us, like, "What's in stock and what's not?" Yeah, so. you can get Kleenex,
2: bleach, toilet paper. We don't have no paper towels. Don't ask us for paper towels. I'm like,
1: lady, and we have only one pallet of rice. You yes, one pallet of rice, and yeah, this is money. So these are the first responders lining up here in this secondary line. So these are doctors, nurses, EMTs, but that was our reality for
2: I was like, you know, the medical profession they never seemed so sexy to me as <laughs> right now. I was like my my degree in social service. I was like, "No. I I have chosen <laughs> wrong- my gloves. <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: Oh my goodness, it was a mess. Oh, but see if oh
2: man, we can't see her. There's a lady who was, well, let me see. Right to her, the right. right there. Yeah. She cut in line. And I was like, Lord, thank you that she did not get in front of me. <laughs> thank you, Father. <laughs> you have spared us both because truly, it would have been a different day. Yes. But she cut in front of some other lady and the lady just, I mean, I don't know if it was like Christian hospitality. She just, just let, let her, her in. Ooh. I was like, ooh. And yeah, we've been standing there about two and a half hours. Two and, ago. and a half hours. And boy. the lady who was who let her in had been standing there. Like, she yeah. got there like 10 minutes after us. And she just let her come on in. I was like, the devil is a lie. <laughs> I'm not even. I was like, you know what? I am still a work in progress. <laughs> and that would have been a different Costco
1: experience.
2: Oh, boy. Yes. That
1: was a mess. Anyway, Yes. But so they sure spent, wasn't getting no toilet paper. This is our dedication to y'all. <laughs> this is the act of love. We are so tired right now. We were at the store from 6.45 until about 3.15 or 3.30. Yeah, we got home We got home closer yeah. to 4. So yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. About 3.30. We had to do my mother's shopping, too.
2: Two braids, yes. Two braids would have come out. See, I am like, you know, I can sit up in here and be on this little screen and talk about Jesus. But let me let you know, I am a work in progress. <laughs> I have not always...
1: Uh Walmart so, here you has know. been counting people going in and coming out of the store.
2: Same here. Our Walmart line was literally down around into the back of the building. We were like, uh-uh. uh-uh. We're going to Target. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not to say 55
1: cents. <laughs> it was a mess. So mm-hmm. that was our day, people. Yes. Okay. Uh, So if people missed the show last week, we're doing an Easter topic today, but we also had a very awesome Easter topic last week. Yes.
2: And Jay Warner Wallace, who is so awesome. Like I hadn't really heard of him before, but I'm a work in progress. People, I'm I'm learning. Yeah. But he was so awesome. He knows so much. He was a cold case detective in L.A. for a number of years. Yeah. And then use those skills to prove the resurrection. Now, I was like, what?
1: There's some similarities between his story and our guest tonight. Like both of them were adult converts. Both of them really have dug into the details of the of the scripture and looking for uh, contradictions and helping us kind of think about those things. So if people missed our conversation last week with Jim Wallace, go check that out on. It was so good. Yeah,
2: so good. Susanna says they didn't count at my Walmart in San Dimas. Susanna, that's the same Walmart we were at. Yes, they did. It was down there. There had to the have been
1: five hundred people in line. I cannot even. Yeah, it people. Was, it was the Walmart in San Dimas. It was crazy. Yes. Um. Okay. So we are still living in the midst of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Yes, but we at all the things are trying to make it fun for you, and so. We ha- I did a live stream on Monday night. If you if you missed that live stream, I did something on the mark of the beast, mm-hmm. and so people can go back and check that out. Um, it was a great conversation. We're probably going to be doing another midweek live stream. Yeah, probably around Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah, maybe? probably around Wednesday night. So be watching for that. Something based on like the economy and stewardship, talking about the stimulus talking about job losses. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking to some people that are, have been researching some things on our behalf, yeah. um, related to those themes. So I'm
2: looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. We don't have a time for it yet, but stay tuned. We will post it. And, um, yeah, it'll be a good conversation. A lot of stimulus money is coming down. It's supposed to be released this week. What does that mean for us individually? What does it mean for money that churches can apply for? Um, there's, there's a lot of conversation that people should really be informed about and, you know, making informed decisions is really important, especially in this time.
1: Well, our friend Laura says her trip to Aldi was like a walk in the park, which is not permitted here, by the way. Yeah, no, <laughs> Do you, y'all, they have an app where you can
2: report people for walking down the street during, like without, or without their count, mask, the county or, right
1: next to us. Yes. yes. So you can this report people. I call it USSR level snitching. What is this? Yeah. What are we doing? Yes. So we're gonna talk about some of those themes tonight. Later Check in the show. Check out that lower
0: third on Monique.
1: Oh, okay. Yes. Look at the lower third. Whoop whoop. Okay.
2: So in case Here's you didn't. Somebody. So, no. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> um. I will just give a brief little snippet. Um. I am starting an organization called the Center for Biblical Unity. You can check it out on Facebook. You can check out a website that is started um, center for biblical unity.com. And I will just say that we're also going to do, a, um, or I'm leading a book discussion, a small group study on um, Miles McPherson's book, the third option. And it starts this Sunday. So a week from tomorrow. Yeah. A week from tomorrow, um, the 19th. And so, yes, when you see the lower third the um, center for biblical unity, because. Unity is something that's really important and we cannot afford to lose our minds right now and be all one against another. No, let's have some, some sane conversation somewhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Somewhere. All right. So let's welcome uh, our friend Jim Mosley to the show, because even though the pandemic is happening, we are still having a good time learning things here on all the things. So welcome Jim.
0: How are you doing Krista? Hi Monique.
1: Hi. We're doing good, and Jim is uh, our former Sunday school teacher. Bob and I went to his Sunday school class for several years, and now Jim's living in the great state of Massachusetts, so he moved. The and I just have to
0: tell you to me I, I hate to see him smug, but um we went to Costco yesterday. We drove into the parking lot. We didn't even circle once, we just parked in the first place. We walked inside, a lady came out and said, You don't want to go in there because it's it's just crowded. We walked in, there were only two people per checkout line we Oh, to wow. walk in. We we I turned to Madeline, my wife, and I said, Um, this lady has never been to Costco in Alhambra. <laughs> wow. I guess New Englanders are not easily inflamed. Oh wow! <laughs> there I, was everything there. there we're, we don't. Have, I mean, in fact, we're sending care packages back to our family in California because they can't find things. We just go pick them off the shelf.
1: Oh, that's so good! I'm yeah. glad that you guys are well stocked there. And our Costco's pretty well stocked, but the lines are ridiculous. They are,
2: now you know who really did well was Sam's Club. Yeah, they they were completely stocked and no lines. And I was like, yes. This is a miracle from the Lord.
1: Yeah, but it is because even after we had been inside for an hour and a half, Jim, when we left, there were still 250 people outside the store waiting to go in. It was it was ridiculous. And the line was probably 75 people long just to
0: well, check I'll out. Tell you, that's, uh, I live in a little town here called Peterson with 1,234 people and our family, we're the four. <laughs> and after living in California, Southern California for, California for nearly 30 years, a sig alert out here is a squirrel crossing the road. <laughs> oh,
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're here and uh, to help us talk about the events of Holy Week. This is a, a show that uh, Monique and I have been talking about for a while, and so I'm glad that even in the midst of the pandemic, we can talk about it. And we have some some graphics. I want to. Well, I see that Bob has your website up, and I want to let people know about your website throughout the show. Uh, Jim's website, thebiblehistoryguy.com. dot com. And Jim, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself? to us and tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in putting kind of timelines of, of the Bible together.
0: Sure. Well, when I was about 12 years old, I was sitting on a bridge in Boca Raton, Florida, looking at the sunset, and I was thinking about things. And what I thought about is there had to be a God, but I didn't know who he was. And although I was in a, you know, peripherally Christian family, Uh, As I grew up, I kept searching for God, and I looked in Greek philosophy at school, and um, when I didn't really seem to find him there, um, I I took jobs that got me to go all around the world. So I've lived and worked or touched base in 90 countries. My real secret reason for doing that, apart from just enjoying the adventure, was that I was looking for God. And I didn't find him in the Quran. I studied the Quran for a long time, and I know it better than most Muslims do. And I studied a lot of different traditions. And I finally went to India, took a job and went to India, thinking that if I went east, I'd find God. When I arrived in Bombay, I met this uh, man who was the owner of a large company. He was about 60, about my age then, and I was about 20. And when I walked into his office, he looked at me and said, why have you come to India? And I said, well, sir, you know. I came to open up this company together with your company, my American company, Brinks, the Iron Car Company. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about the professional reason. Why have you come? And I had never told anybody this. It was a complete deep, dark secret. But I looked at him and I knew what he meant. And I said, well, I'm searching for God. And he said, well, I thought that would be the case. So he went behind his desk and he picked up his battered old cardboard box filled with books on every kind of religious tradition in India you could think of, Sufism and Buddhism and Jainism and Sikhism and all that, and I was thrilled because I was hungry for resources like that, and he said, now, I'm giving you the books, but I want you to know that you need to be careful, don't become a metaphysical tourist, we have so many people who come from the West and they see what they think are miracles and they get lost, and I said, well, okay, thank you for that, so I spent two years in India. And I did not, although I crossed the Himalayas, I met the Dalai Lama in Southeast Asia. I trekked through a steaming Javan jungle to a Sufi shrine, but I never found God. So I came back here. My court of last resort was a Christian church. And the guy, the the pastor at this mega church in California, not the one we were at, Krista, made an altar call. And uh, I thought to myself, well, I don't really like this place and I don't really believe what he's saying. But you know what? I'm at my last desperate hope. And if I'm scientific enough to try all the other stuff I've tried, I can walk down to the front of this, this uh, church and, and, and see what he, if what he says is true. And If I would have been God and received my prayer, I probably would have reduced myself to a grease spot on, you know, on the instant. Because what I really prayed, prayed was a little bit insolent. I was like, you know, God, I don't know if you're out there. I don't particularly like this guy, but, you know, I'm desperate and I want to meet you. And, hey, I'm open. (laughs) That was about as, (laughs) but it was sincere. And at the moment that I said that, I had this amazing little light that went on in my heart. And after having, you know, sat in Buddhist chants through the night and stuff, I thought, ah, it's just ambiance and everything. But it wasn't. The light never went away. And I discovered that I was a Christian, but I discovered, wait a minute, I don't believe the Bible. So I began to read the Bible and I began to get free of this supposed spell that I was under by trying to pull the Bible apart. But I found that although I was pretty well educated and I had a lot of sophisticated ability to debate people and I debated many Christians kind of into the ground, I saw to my shame that, you know, my educated mind kept breaking up against the Bible every time I ran against it. And I suddenly realized the Bible was absolutely perfectly true. And I, and I was really kind of ashamed of myself for being such a, a smart aleck in the past and having debated with Christians and kind of sent them away, humiliated with their tail between their legs, because I thought, what an arrogant jerk I was. I, you know, I, I, I thought I knew the truth, and I was absolutely wrong. I wish I could go back and find those people. But as I grew in Christ, I began to learn, well... Maybe God can make something of a jerk, too, because uh, I learned that I was able to witness easily to Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and all kinds of people since I knew where they came from. So what happened is, Krista, I was in the church that we belonged to, and or maybe you still do, and I got asked by our pastor to pinch hit for an adult Sunday school class for three Sundays. And as often happens in churches, when you volunteer for something, it went on for 10 years. And I never taught the Bible. And the first time that I um, taught something, I ended my first class just drenched in sweat because I was completely nervous. But we had a wonderful class, including you. And you were a great inspiration. I've always admired your intelligence and your, and your education. And, and uh, we had other people in the class, although they weren't professional theologians like you. They were people with a lot of intelligence. And uh, you know, some were professors. And they all knew their Bibles very well. And so for 10 years, I taught the Bible through verse by verse, multiple times, with a class of adults who really knew what they were talking about. So it was the most fantastic iron sharpening iron experience I've ever had. In the course of that, every time I tried to teach a section of the Bible, what I would stumble upon is timelines, chronology. You start out with some part of the Bible and you say, wait a minute, could this be could this fit? Could this be true? Isn't this a contradiction or a problem? And whenever I looked up what scholars had written about that, typically what they'll do is they'll say, well, there's a gap. It's a scribal error. But I can't buy that. Coming from the background that I came from, I was a skeptic. And so I'm big on apologetics. Is the Bible inerrant or not? It can't be partly inerrant. A woman can't be partly pregnant. It's either inerrant or it isn't. And if it's, if it's got errors in it, then we start to unravel the whole sweater. So I got very, very devoted to trying to find answers to the chronological problems in the Bible. And I'm proud to say, not proud of me, I'm proud of the Bible to say that when you work at it meticulously enough, you discover, you discover there is not one minute of chronological discrepancy from Genesis to Revelation. And I've created spreadsheets, I've got a spreadsheet that's about 2,500 pages long, going literally from the creation of Adam all the way to the Apostolic Age. And what you find is it all fits. It all fits absolutely perfectly. So when we look at the Holy Week, there's a lot we can learn because I find that a lot of times we stumble, we don't get the whole picture because we don't see the sequence. But once we see the sequence, we see why people things, why people did things the way they did them and when they did them.
1: That's a great introduction to you, Jim. And I'm going to give you a minute to look at your microphone settings because I think you, you switched back to your webcam microphone. So Does that be better there. Um, I don't th-
0: Yeah, you're uh, no, wait a minute. No, the microphone should be right.
1: All right. Yeah, just keep it close to you there. So I okay. want to let people know like this is just one example of a spreadsheet. Oh, that's throwing our our iris way off. But this is just one example from the Holy Week spreadsheet that we kept all these years from when we went over this years ago. This was probably outdated now, but but Jim would would create these spreadsheets of chronologies and from scripture. And it really helped me to come to appreciate. Um, the details of scripture and I've been honored to know many fine uh, minds in my life. I, I, through my job at reasons to believe, but even though Jim is not a quote unquote professionally trained theologian, he has done so much diligence with the scripture in helping us uh, look at the details. And I love his stand that, hey, when we look at the the details of Scripture, Scripture is going to stand up to scrutiny and that we can trust the Scriptures. And um, so I'm looking forward to just looking a little bit closer at the events of Holy Week because um, there are a number of details there. We've been reading through uh, the Gospels this week as a family day by day. And using Jim's resource to kind of as a as a commentary for many of those readings. And we have been blessed as a family uh, talking through, you know, what happened to Jesus on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And so we just thought, hey, let's get Jim on the show and, and talk about this a little bit more. So let's do you want to jump in?
2: I was just going to jump in. Like, okay. Let's go. <laughs> All right,
1: So let's talk right. a little
2: bit first about the year. Yes. What year did Jesus die? Because I've okay. always heard 33. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm but wrong. I don't know I how it gets that. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, 33 is good. Can you hear the microphone a little better with that?
1: Yeah. 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 Okay, great. Yeah,
0: yeah, I just had to sit close to it. Yeah, I, I just want to say one other thing, Krista. I was a complete amateur self-taught in in, in all of this. But uh, last year I began a master's of divinity in at Liberty University. And so in the course of doing that, the first courses that I took were in Old Testament and New Testament because I wanted to measure the work that I had done against. Um, the standards of scholarship that were out there, and I, I just want to tell you, first of all, I'm not going to say this as a boast, but just as a credential. I have a 4.0 average, so I'm not in there flunking, <laughs> and i have I have found absolutely zero contradiction between anything that I'm going to tell you tonight or any of my chronological arguments. And I've had dialogue with my with my. Professors about it. So, the year of the cross. There are people who will give you 30 A.D. is the year of the cross. Um, as late as 36 A.D. is the year of the cross. Here's how we can know that it has to be 33 A.D. First of all, we know when Jesus started his ministry. Luke three one tells us that it was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, and we know the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar from secular records ended in 29 A.D. And so. He had to be. He had to be somewhere in 29 AD, 20, late 28 or 20, 29 AD. So when we start with that. And then we look at the early chronological markers of John. So we have him meeting, he he goes, he gets baptized, he goes 40 days into the wilderness, so we have a 40-day thing to work with there. He comes back, he meets his first disciples, he goes to the wedding of Cana. One thing we know, the Cana wedding can't happen on a Sabbath, because you can't do food prep on a Sabbath. So when we start to put all these things together, we realize, ah, the only year that works for the start of Jesus' ministry is 29. Well if it's 29 we know that he's in the feast of tabernacles when he meets his first disciples because they're all staying somewhere they're in, all in Jerusalem for some reason must be a feast they're all staying somewhere besides a house it must be tabernacles they're staying in booths and it's all camping out by the river jordan also and so they come back and they have the wedding at cana and they go in late october when the wedding is over to capernaum and they seem to be having just a family holiday because jesus goes with his with his mother and his brothers and sisters and his disciples the next thing that happens is he cleanses the temple at the Passover. This is the first Passover. The Gospel of John tells us there are four Passovers in the ministry of Jesus. Well, if you start in, t- in the fall of 29 uh, AD and you go through four Passovers, you end up in the year 33. Now, can we cross-check this? Yes, we can. Because if we use, there there are some tools, like there's a, there's a tool called Calendus software, which allows you to run... Uh, Persian calendars, Greek calendars, Roman calendars, Gregorian calendars. So if we look at that, we find out: Would there be any argument with anybody that Jesus was crucified on a Friday, which ha- fell on the Passover? Right? No one argue with that, would they? Well, there's there are only two years from 29 AD to 36 AD when the Passover fell on a Friday, and one is 33, and one is 36. Can it be 36? If it were 36, it would mean Jesus' ministry lasted for seven years. can't be 36. 36 is also the year when Tiberius recalled um, Pontius Pilate from Rome, back from uh, Israel back to Rome. So he wouldn't have had the time to do all the things that he did in the Passion Week. So it has to be 33 AD. And that means the year of the cross was 33. The day of the cross was April 1st, uh, the 14th day of Nisan. And there's more there are are more proofs of it. But I think that'll do it for now. Yeah,
1: no, that's really uh, that's a good introduction. And and um, I should probably say that Jim's mastery of languages is truly remarkable. So when he's saying the proper Latin pronunciation of what we crudely call Pontius Pilate, don't be thrown off by that.
0: Yeah, I'm not, not trying. I, it really is true. I'm not trying to be a snob. Yeah, maybe I am without trying to be one. But the point is that the point is that you know because I lived overseas and things like that, I still have a hard time saying things like Pontius pilot And I'll try to do that. I'm not. No, it's okay. I just
1: want to let people not. They. I want them to follow what you're saying there. Okay. So, okay.
2: Pontius Pilate, right?
0: Okay. Pontius Pilatus.
2: <laughs> All right. Uh,
0: his name Pilatus means he's a spear carrier.
1: Oh. Oh.
0: A pilum is a pilum is a Roman spear, and his, his name means spear carriers.
1: Oh, interesting. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So then,
2: when we look at like the Last Supper and things like that, what day did that happen on?
0: Yeah. So that's interesting. The Last Supper happened on Thursday of the Passion Week. Now that's kind of a problem, isn't it? Because we know from we know from Je- we know from Exodus, excuse me, we know from the Bible, the Torah, that the day of Passover is the 14th day of the first month, the 14th day of Nisan. Well, the 14th day of Nisan in 33 was Friday. But here's Jesus having the Last Supper, which is clearly his Passover meal. And he's having it on Thursday, which is the 13th of Nisan.
1: And we have the we have the American calendar here on the graphic. And so we want to let people know what we're showing is. Not the Jewish day, but, but Jim's conversion to our, um, our modern calendar
0: here. Yep. Yep. So the 13th day of Nisan is Thursday, March 31st. And the 14th day of Nisan is April 1st. So Jesus on Friday, April 1st, the 14th of Nisan, that's the day of the cross. And so why is he having the Passover on a Thursday? That always puzzled me. Well, the reason is this. Now, you have to realize that when we talk about time, we have to get into the minds of first century people. And in Jesus' world, there is absolutely no doubt that Jesus and his disciples fluently spoke Aramaic, fluently spoke Greek. Uh, They probably never spoke Roman, uh, Latin, that is to say. uh, Mel Gibson's passion of the Christ is not correct. People in the Eastern Empire did not commonly speak Latin. But they spoke those things and they thought in those ways. So it's really interesting when we see Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'd you think a guy like Luke who's a Gentile would use timekeeping, the timekeeping methods of the Romans, but he doesn't. He, the, the three synoptic gospel writers consistently use the Jewish timekeeping method, and John uses the Roman timekeeping method. And when we put those things together, we get really great, a really great picture of what happened in the Passion Week. But you have to remember. Nobody there had a stopwatch. Nobody had a, a, a computer. Nobody had a smartphone. So when they're saying that it happened in the third hour, in the sixth hour, or anything like that, that's about that time. Now, we can go back and analyze it and figure out exactly what the time frames were, but we have to step back and realize that just the people describing those things did not have an atomic clock. So but I
1: think it's important for people to understand that different gospel writers use different calendars and different timekeeping. And that I don't think that many people understand that that you have the synoptics using the Jewish way of keeping time and but John's gospel uses the Roman way of keeping time. And this helps resolve some of the apparent contradictions and confusing points in the text. And you know, for for those of us who are, are lay people, we might not key into that right away. So I think that's a really I want to make sure that people understand what Jim's doing. And he uses software to try to help bring these calendars together as a tool. It can help him uh, put these these time frames in, into alignment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because if you look, let's say, at Mark 15, 25, it says that Jesus was hung on the cross in the third hour. Well, this has to be the third Jewish hour. That means the third hour, within the third hour after sunrise, because if it were the third Roman hour, it would be 3 a.m. We know that's not possible because of all the things that happened with Jesus' Jesus' trial and everything. So we can see for sure that Mark is using the uh, Jewish hour. But then we see John 19.14 says around the sixth hour, um, Pilate said, behold, your king. Well, the six hour couldn't be the Jewish hour because if it were the Jewish hour, it would be noon. So the, so the great thing about it is the Bible speaks to us. It tells us these things. Now there's another thing. There's nothing we need. To, well, we don't really need to think about it, but it helps a lot to, to clarify the day of the cross. Jews not only measure, they measure the day starting at a different time. And they do that because in Genesis, Genesis 1, it says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So God defined a day as from sunset of day one until sunset of day two. That was a day. And what the Jews did is we we say there are 24 hours in a day. And so we're very, we're very, You know, like like the Romans were very rational with that. But the Jews didn't do that. The Jews had elastic days. So if you have a day in the middle of summer on the equator, where uh, the sunlight is 12 hours and the dark hours are 12 hours, then you have 24 evenly divided days in about 60 minutes each. But if you come north to like where I am and you get into the winter and the, the daylight hours are shorter, the Jews take the shorter period of daylight hours, and they cut those up into 12 hours. And they take the dark hours, and they cut those up into 12 hours. So what you have is, in winter, the daylight hours are compressed. They might not be 60 minutes each. They might be 55 minutes each or something like that. And the nighttime hours might be 65 minutes each. So when you that's called halakhic timekeeping. So when we take the Day of the Cross, and we make a table, and we say, okay, here our Roman hours and here are Jewish hours and here's halachic timekeeping, we can come really close to understanding what happened. And so we want to know when darkness fell or when Jesus died or when he was taken down from the cross, we can get very, very close to that. Because remember our people, our heroes back in the first century weren't doing all this software stuff. They were just looking at the sun.
1: Right. So when we think about the upper room, it's a Thursday for us. It's, it's a Thursday March 31st, a very good day, by the way, my birthday. Um, So then they have the Last Supper. So that brings me to a question I have really grappled with, which was, was the Last Supper a Passover meal? Because technically the Passover doesn't happen until Friday. So tell us a little bit about your theory about whether or not That the Last Supper is a Passover meal.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a Passover, and it's actually not even a theory of mine. It it works like this. Going back to timekeeping, the way that you knew what the time of the month was is you relied upon the high priest. And the high priest and his associate uh, Levites would look at the moon, and they would declare that the month has just begun. Well, that was fine if you were in Jerusalem, but if you lived outside Jerusalem in Galilee, you could not find out what the time of the month was in real time. The only way they did that is they would have signal fires that they would use from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop to tell people the new moon has come. Uh, But that only went so far, and there were people living in Rome and Egypt and every place else. And so what happened was for Jews who were not native to Judea, they would always make their pilgrimages to Jerusalem in a way that they would arrive a day before the actual holiday. And that way, they would celebrate a pre-Passover Passover, and they would celebrate a real Passover Passover. And they did that because they feared that if they got their, the first holiday of the year wrong, if they got if they were late for Passover, then they would how would they know when uh, Pentecost would come? Well, they counted the days down from Passover to Pentecost, and if they got Pente- Passover late, they'd get Pentecost late. And they got Pentecost late, they'd get all the other ones late. So they'd be out of sink. They wouldn't be an, obedient to God. So Jesus and all his disciples were from outside Jerusalem. And therefore it was absolutely normal for them and all outsiders to come and celebrate Passover A. And the following day they would celebrate Passover B. Very good. And and, and, and Jews do still do that today all around the world. Many, many observant Jews, not everyone of course, but many observant Jews still do that right now.
1: Wow.
2: I'm just sitting here learning. Yeah. Like, I'm just learning and learning and yeah. learning. Okay, so they had their Passover on the Thursday. What happens on the actual Passover on
1: Friday? Well, before we get into that, let's just finish out Thursday here. So after the dinner, they go out to Gethsemane. And so I'm imagining it's pretty late um at night at that point. And then there's Judas's betrayal and then the arrest. Do you have any sort of estimation as to what that time frame is for those events.
0: Yeah, so, of course, the Passover is going to begin at sundown. And I, I, can't really, I, I can't really break down the hours of the night in which these things happen because there's no real chronological clue in the scripture to give us that. What we have is we have the end of the Passover. We know it's dark. We know a bunch of stuff happens. Then we have the cock crowing. Well, cocks don't necessarily crow at an exact time, so we don't know that. But then we have the sun rising. So sometime between the sun going down, the Passover dinner, and the sun rising, we see a bunch of stuff happening. So we can postulate what the what what each event might have taken in terms of time, but we can't, you know, I wouldn't dare to try to get too exact because I don't I don't really have primary data to do that. But I will tell you this. when When we think about the Passover that he was having, actually what Jesus did was something unique. He converted the Passover from its normal structure into something completely different. And he didn't complete the Passover Thursday night. He didn't complete it until he died on the cross. And the, way, and the way to understand that is to look at the Passover the way Jews understand the Passover. So what do you have to do to have a Passover? Well, you have to get together, uh, you have to get a lamb, you have to roast the lamb, and that's gotta be done roasted before sundown because you can't be roasting it after sundown, you would be violating the Sabbath commandment to rest. And so what would happen is in Jerusalem, they would start, Josephus tells us, they would start slaying the lambs at around 1 p.m. And if you were a celebrant, you had to bring your lamb there, show the priest, they would inspect it. Okay, it's good. And then you would have to kill it. And then you kill it, and the priest drains the blood. Then you have to flay it. And when you flay it, you take it home and you roast it. So you got to get there at least two hours before sundown. So this has got to end. But has got to start at 1 p.m., got to end at 4 p.m. You get home and do that. You notice that Jesus told his disciples to to prepare the upper room, and he never said, go get a lamb. And there's no lamb on the table. We read about bitter herbs. They're supposed to be there. We read about unleavened bread. That's supposed to be there. We read about wine. That has to be there. But there is no lamb. So what happens is they all get together into the upper room. And by the way, I'll tell you in a moment why I believe the upper room was in the house of John Mark. But anyway, um... They get together in the upper room. And by, and by the way, the Bible also says there were the, the disciples and others. So there are other people at the Last Supper too. So they sit there and they, the first thing you're supposed to do at a Passover is you're supposed to wash your hands. The, celib- the, the, the leader, the Seder leader washes his hands and everybody washes their hands. Jesus changes that. He doesn't wash their hands, he washes their feet. So there are two things the disciples have got to be thinking at this point. Where's the lamb? Uh, Exodus says you cannot have a Passover without consuming the entire lamb without breaking its bones before the following sunrise. No lamb. And he says, I've been eager to share this Passover with you, but there's no lamb. Then instead of washing things, when Peter protests, wait, 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 no, don't, don't wash my feet. You shouldn't do that. I should be serving you. And he says, if you don't let me wash my feet, you have no part in me. And he says, well, then wash not just my feet, but all of me. The disciples have to be kind of in a state of shock. We're not washing our hands. We've been criticized before by the Pharisees for not washing our hands. Nobody's washing hands here, but Jesus is washing our feet. Something unusual is going to happen. So we know the story. He goes in there, and, 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 and he, he, um, it's implied because the dinner begins that there's a first cup of wine. It's not stated in the Gospels. But then we see the second cup of wine. Then we see the third cup of wine. But you cannot have a complete Passover without the fourth cup of wine. And he doesn't have it. But he gets up and he sings the Passover hymns, which are supposed to come after the fourth cup of wine. And he goes out to the garden, the Gethsemane. So the disciples again have to be thinking, wait a minute. No hand washing, no lamb. And where's the fourth cup? We are not having the Passover. He was so eager to celebrate with us. But Jesus said a key thing. He said, um, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until... All these things have been accomplished, and his Father's kingdom had come. Now, did he ever drink of the fruit of the vine again that we can see in the Gospels? Yeah. When he was on the cross, once, they offered him some sour vinegar, which is the fruit of the vine, and he rejected it. But just before he gave up his spirit and said, it is finished, he said, I thirst. And they gave him wine, and he drank it, and he gave up his spirit. It was the fourth cup of the new Passover of the Messiah. He was the lamb.
1: Okay, so then he goes out and he gets arrested. Tell us about the first trials that Jesus has, because there's kind of two sets of trials. First, he goes through a series of trials with the Jewish leaders. And so I'm thinking this is approximately sometime after midnight, um, before the dawn it's early Friday morning. So talk us through what's happening here.
0: Okay. So first of all, he goes out to, he goes out to the Mount of Olives and we know the story about he, uh, he tells, uh, his disciples to wait for a little bit. And while he goes and he prays, let me go, just say, I'm going to go look at my notes here. So I make sure I, uh, don't get anything wrong. Um, I just want to mention also, you know that it's on Wednesday that Judas goes and makes his deal with the priests. Okay, so we get to Gethsemane, and uh, he takes Peter, James, and John only. So the other ones, who knows where they are? But he takes them up and he, he prays, and 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 uh, and they fall asleep. And he comes back and wakes them up, and he prays again. And they fall asleep, and he does it a third time, and then he gets up. And while he's still speaking to them, Judas comes up leading a group of people. So this isn't the night sometime. We don't exactly know when. And so this is a lawless mob because guess what? Why are they doing this in the dark anyway? Why are they doing this after night? They don't have the authority under Roman law to do this. And they know they don't. And, and we'll, get it, we'll show that in a minute. But, anyway, but anyways, they're doing it. And that's why Jesus says, hey, wait a minute. I was teaching the temple all this time. and You, you do this now in the middle of the night? And so Judas comes up and he kisses Jesus, Jesus to identify him. Why? I mean, his, Jesus is famous. Jesus can hardly even go anywhere without crowds, uh, crowds get going all around him. Well, he probably does it because it's dark. Nobody has eyeglasses in the first century. And all these disciples and Jesus probably look pretty similar. They're the same age. they probably all, you know, you know, dress and groom the same way. So somebody has to identify them. So Jesus says, okay, uh, friend, do what you came to do. And then he says, they, they ask if he's Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they, they, they all fall backwards and everything. So then Peter draws his sword to try to defend Jesus. And he cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Remember that. Because he's going to go to the house of the high priest. And Malchus has already gone back there and told this story. So Jesus says, put away the sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then Jesus heals Malchus's ear. And they take him away. Now, when they take him away... Mark says there's a young man who flees from the scene um, naked. Now, he probably doesn't mean naked. It means he lost his outer garment. So he lost his outer garment and he fled. A lot of people believe that was John Mark. I'm not sure if it was John Mark, but I kind of think it probably is. Mark is putting his own signature in his gospel. If it is John Mark, that is very suggestive that the upper room was in John Mark's house, because otherwise... How did John Mark know where to find them at that time of night? It was Passover night. It was like quarantine. Everybody's in, inside. And what was John Mark doing showing up there uh, uh, on Gethsemane? Because there were, quote unquote, others at the Last Supper. There could have been John Mark. And it kind of makes sense when he sends the disciples into Jerusalem and says, hey, tell the owner of the house the master needs it. John Mark's father, he goes, oh, it's Jesus again. So that probably kind of makes sense. I, I'm not going to say it's dogmatic, but it's uh, but it's pretty clear. So the soldiers and the officers, they take him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Here's one of the confusing things, right? How come there are two high priests? Isn't there only supposed to just be one high priest? Well, there's a reason for that. Um, Annas became the high priest much earlier. I think it was in 15 AD. And um, he got defrocked. And the reason he got defrocked is because he killed somebody for breaking the Sabbath. He exercised capital punishment. Well, the Romans didn't allow that, so they deposed on us, and he could no longer be high priest. Now, think about that. He's trying Jesus, and he wants to kill him. He's been wanting to kill him for a long time. He wanted to kill Lazarus, he wanted to kill Jesus, and they had given up the plot to kill, to kill Jesus on Wednesday until Judas showed up and said, I want to make a deal. And they said, well, on the other hand, maybe we should try to kill him now. So he knows he's going to try to kill Jesus, but he's had the experience before of being taken out of office and warned by the Romans, don't do that. Capital punishment is our authority only. So if he's so going to go, do you,
1: do you know that detail from Josephus about Annas? Like, how do you know that detail?
0: From Josephus, okay, yep, and we also know from Josephus another intriguing little nuance here, and that is the family of uh, Annas was despised by a lot of the Jews. They were known; they were they were called arrogant. They were called snakes. This is all from Josephus, and one of the reasons that they were so disliked is they were Sadducees, and they ran the temple sacrificial animal biz. So when you wanted to go to the temple and get a sacrificial animal. Yeah, they, were, they were the mafia running the market in the temple, which is one of the reasons why they were so ticked off at Jesus. Even though that's not in the gospel, we can infer that from realizing that they were making tons of money from this. And Jesus comes in in the first his ministry and he cleanses the temple. He comes in on Palm Sunday and he cleanses the temple. The Monday after Palm Sunday, he cleanses the temple again. So he cleanses the temple three times and disrupts their business and their authority. And they're really, really ticked off. And so Annas is the power behind the throne. He cannot be the high priest. But five of his sons or his son-in-law were um, high priests while he lived. And in this case, his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas, is the high priest. But Annas is the power behind the throne. So that's why they, that's why they come to both of them. So what happens is, yeah, he, I just have it here. He served as high priest from 6 to 15 AD. So anyway, uh, it was Gratus, Valerius Gratus, the Roman who deposed him. So anyway, they go to they go to his house and they question him, and now they've got him surrounded by now. When when we see soldiers here, who are these soldiers? These soldiers are temple thugs. They're temple thugs. They're just enforcers for the for, for, for the temple. They're not Roman soldiers here at this point. And at this point, they beat him, they mock him, they blindfold him, they strike him, and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but he hasn't even yet gone to the to, to, to the Romans. So um, let's see. So what happens is uh, yeah, they get there and they question him and they can't get any good information out of him. And the thing of it is all the, te- all the witnesses in the, in, in the trial here give false testimony. I mean, they, they say things like, um, you know, but Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues. What are, you, what are you questioning me about?
2: Jim, what are they accusing him of?
0: Well, first of all, and what's the crime? They, well, they, 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 they don't really come up with any, good, with any good crimes until somebody says that he said he was going to tear down the temple in three days. And so that, become, that becomes the uh, that becomes the kill shot that he's going to tear so down the temple. But, he, but wait a minute, there's no <laughs> there's no uh, law against saying you're going to tear down the temple in three days. I mean, it's just it might be an outrageous thing to say, it might be an obnoxious thing to say, but there's no law against it.
2: So right now he's being beaten and held, and he there's no real crime that he's being accused of.
0: Right. And, okay. and, and, and so, and so the high priest wants, so let's see, he says, yeah, that's the thing. He says, I want you to answer the charge. Are you, are, you know, are you going to do that? And, um, so.
1: So then they, they send him off to the Sanhedrin. Yep. And then the, the charge, I think at that point becomes blasphemy. Right. If, you, if I'm right. You say I'm the son of God.
0: You say that I am. Right. And, but and, why did
1: they send him to the Romans? Like,
0: why? Because they don't have the authority to kill him. Annas knows that if they, if, what are they going to do with him? Are they going to beat him and let him go? Are they going to, are they going to, you know, uh, have a stern talk with him? They want to kill him, but they know that if they kill him, they stand a very good chance of getting killed. This, this governor, this procurator, Pontius Pilate, already killed a bunch of Jews who rioted against him in a, pre- in a previous incident that we find in, jo- in, in Josephus. So they know they're, they know they're playing with fire. This is, this is serious.
2: So the plan is they want to kill Jesus. They can't do it themselves. So now they send him to the Romans who legally could kill him.
0: Right. But now they have to come up with a reason to do that. So the thing of it is the sunrise comes up at around five twenty AM in Jerusalem at this time. And so uh, at this time, they ask him, basically, are you outright, are you the Messiah, are you the Son of God? And he says, you have said so, you've said that I am, and I am. That's in from, that's from the Gospel of John. But think about this. Is there any law against saying you're the Messiah? No. Is it blasphemous to say you're the Messiah? No, it isn't. You may be wrong, but you have to realize that, that um, 40 years later when the temple falls, there are going to be many people who go around saying, I'm the Messiah. Right. No one ever accused them of blasphemy. Jesus even said you're, there are going to be many people who say, I'm the Christ, and here is the Christ. There were going to be false Christs all over the place. No one ever accused him of blasphemy. So this charge of blasphemy, like the, the Pharisees are amazing because they just don't know their Bible and it happens again and again and again they they believe what they want to believe but it isn't supported by scripture
1: so then after the sanhedrin they they take him they take jesus then to the romans because they kind of have this trumped up blasphemy charge but they can't put him to death annas knows that you know he can't put someone to death so we're going to take him to pilate now but at this point, we're starting to get further into the night. And then you calculate, I have the, on the slide here, that sunrise happens at 523. But we still have some, some more events that, that have to happen before sunrise. Why don't you well, talk us through those real quick?
0: Right. So what happens is, what happens is he, he, he basically says to the Messiah, the Sanhedrin says he deserves death. Now, where is this happening? This is happening at the house of Annas. The house of Annas is not an official court of law or anything like that. Then what happens is about an hour before sunrise, so we're talking about 421 21 p.m., the co- Peter enters the courtyard. Now he gets in the courtyard. This is the courtyard of Annas' house. The guy that Peter cut the ear off of, Malchus, that's where he lives. He lives in this house. So, so Peter gets in there, the cock crows three times, he denies he denies Jesus three times, and then as they are leading Jesus out of the house of Annas to the house of Caiaphas, um, Jesus and, 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 and Peter lock eyes, and then Jesus uh, Peter walks out humiliated. Now why are they taking him from the house of Annas to the house of Caiaphas? Well, they took him to Annas' house first where the Sanhedrin got together, that was an unofficial place of interrogation. Now they want to get him over to Pilate because the sign had read and said, because he said he's the Messiah, he deserves death. So they're going to take him over. They're going to take him over to, to Pilate. But if they take him from Anna's house to Pilate, and this is my inference, it's going to seem unofficial. So they need to take him to Caiaphas' house. So Caiaphas, the official high priest, can turn Jesus over to Pilate because Pilate's Pilot tries to get out of this so many times that if there's any um, official uh, gap in this whole procedure, he's going to grab it. So they take him over there. And um, so now they deliver him to Pilot. So now it's morning. Now, by morning, we probably mean it's still pretty close to sunrise. So they, they take him. They take him over to Pilot. And uh, it's probably the sun is just low over the eastern horizon. It's not yet. It, it's it's not quite dawn, but it's over. But Pilate has got to be thinking. Wait a minute. It's this early in the morning. What are these people doing? Um, uh, inv- invading my place. Now it's at this time that Judas changes his mind. Now the sun, and everybody are pretty darn busy. <laughs> and Judas shows up and says, "I changed my mind. I've changed my mind. I give you my silver back." So probably what really happened here is that. Annas and Caiaphas and the top dogs didn't have time to deal with Judas. So they said, you know, deal with our deal with our, our, our associates here and everything. And so that whole Judas story unfolds. Um, but then what happens is he stands before Pilate and Pilate can't find anything wrong with him. And they try to, they, you know, the, the, the Jewish leaders, uh, Pilate asks, OK, what accusation are you are you bringing against Jesus? And they say, hey, listen, it's it's bad enough that we have to do, we have to bring him to you it's evil. And when Pilate hears the word evil he says evil, uh blasphemous, um well that's your business. That's a religious thing. It's not mine.
1: Yeah, it yeah. just it, it's it's almost like they're saying he says this isn't my business. This isn't my concern. You know, this is a religious dispute. Right. Why would I be in judgment over a a, a blasphemy charge? But then but, they discover <clears throat> that Jesus is from Galilee and then he wants to well, here's another way I can offload this problem.
0: Right. And, and well, well, actually, before they get to Galilee, what happens is he says, um, you know, he says it's a religious thing. And one of the reasons Pilate doesn't want to do this is Pilate is on the bubble. Um, Tiberius right now is the emperor back in Rome. Tiberius appointed um, uh, Pilate, but Pilate was the protege of a guy called Seianus. Seianus had just been executed for treason. This is a really dangerous time in Rome, and he's already had two bad incidents in in Judea. He doesn't need a third, because it could mean his life and the life of his whole family. So the the minute he finds out that it's a question of blasphemy, he's not interested. And then he hears the awful truth. The the, the Jewish leaders tell him, look, let's make it plain. We want you to kill him for blasphemy. And, And here's the thing. Um, he, he said that he's a king and that we should worship. He's the king of the Jews, and that undermines the uh, oath to Caesar. And so Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, and he, I love how he answers obliquely. He goes, well, you've said so. And, the, and, and Pilate's amazed, and he, he's facing this fiery mob on the one hand, and he just says, you know what? He may say he is, but he says, quote, unquote, I find no guilt in this man. And they say he stirs him up, stirs up everybody in Judea and even Galilee. And then Pilate says, "He's from Galilee? Great, send him to Herod." So he shoots him off to Herod Antipas. So now we're a little later on in the morning. But remember, um, Jesus is going to hang on the cross between the hours of seven or eight. So you have to realize that sun is—you know—sun was about an hour before sunrise. Peter denies him. Then they have this, they take him to from Annas house to Caiaphas' house. They have this conversation to Caiaphas' house. They take him to, to Pilate. Pilate junts him off to, to, to Herod Antipas. And uh, this is really cramped. This is racing. These things are happening very, very fast.
1: Yeah, things, things are, like, there's so many events when you start seeing the chronology of everything that's happening. It's like, wow, there's a lot of things happening during the night. And I'm going to... We're going to have to skip some of the details, Jim. I'm going to encourage people to go to your book, but I want to kind of hurry us along here to Sorry hit, that, hit yeah. some highlights. So, what happens is um Jesus goes to Herod Antipas and and Herod seems very intrigued by Jesus. He he he's he's like there's a line in one of the gospels that Herod had been wanting to meet him. <laughs> you yep. know, it, it's kind of interesting, but He ultimately doesn't do anything and sends him back to Pilate.
0: Yep. He sends it back to Pilate and Pilate spends a long time arguing with the Jews about
1: trying to talk him out of it, trying to help Jesus. Almost he's trying to find an exit door of this whole situation.
0: hundred percent. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. And the only reason he gets forced to kill Jesus is because he's facing a completely unruly mob. The last time in his procuratorship that he dealt with an unruly mob, he murdered a whole bunch of them and it was a mess for him. It was a political mess. He doesn't want to go back there. And even his wife comes out and says, you know, I had a dream. Do not do anything wrong with that good man. And he doesn't want to do anything about it. And then, and then pilot even looks at him at one point and said, and, uh, and, uh, he says what is truth and here he is standing toe to toe with the with the embodiment of truth and he doesn't recognize it but he finally he finally decides to wash his hands of it famously and let them and let them release barabbas the one the one prisoner and send jesus to 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 be executed but it's kind of clear in the dialogue there that pilate's worried about this he's also he seems nervous about whether this could be a god in human flesh you know Romans kind of sort of believed in that sometimes, and even at this t- this time, so he he just definitely doesn't want to do it. And there's no doubt about it; the Jews force his hand, uh, and he he gives up because he doesn't think he's got a choice.
1: One thing that I find very curious is that it it's so early in the morning, like it's at sunrise, and they're having this mob of people saying crucify him at six in the morning. And I I'm always, I I'm trying to when I look at the The chronology here, that's very puzzling to me as to why such a huge crowd will be assembled so So early early in the morning. Were they up and around because it was the official Passover day? Um, Have they been following the events? Do you have any thoughts about that?
0: Yeah, I think we can detect a clue here from the scriptures because we see that when Jesus carries his cross to Golgotha, he's followed by large crowds of people, including women who are crying, and he addresses the daughters of Jerusalem. And so I think what, what we're seeing here is that uh, people often say, oh, the crowds were hailing him as King of the Jews, Hosanna, when he came in on Palm Sunday. Then they were demanding his death instead of Barabbas on, uh, on the day of the cross. And uh, then they were following him and weeping on the way to to, uh, Golgotha. Well, the assumption there is that these are all the same people, but I don't believe they are the same people. I believe the mob that we have at at Pilate's court are just the Sanhedrin and their followers. Oh, okay. Yeah, most of the people who followed Jesus, who welcomed them Palm Sunday, woke up on Friday in shock. That the guy that they were so admiring that they said, "Can this be the Christ?" Well, if the Christ comes, will anyone say more than this man? You know, they were excited about him, and now they find out you're kidding me. He's been he's been arrested, so I don't think they're the same people at all. That, that's very
1: helpful. So then Jesus gets gets whipped or flogged yep. s- somewhere after sunrise, somewhere between six and eight a.m. Because by nine a.m. he's on the cross.
0: Well, he's on he's on the cross actually uh, between seven and eight. Okay, And so and so what happens is some somewhere between about five thirty and six, six a.m., six twenty a.m., the Romans flog him. They put the crown of thorns on him. They put the purple robe on him and they say, hail, king of the Jews. And they strike him with their hands and all that sort of stuff. Then Pilate brings him out in front of the mob after having, you know, roughed him up and says, behold the man, and they cry out, crucify, crucify him, and he goes, you go crucify him, I find no guilt in him, and they say, no, we've got a law, Uh, we can't, um, he he ought to die because he made himself the son of God, and Pilate says, are you, anything?" but he find Pilate loses the argument finally, and he sends him, so it's not yet 7 a.m. when Pilate delivers him over to be crucified, and Jerusalem's waking up, and that's where they follow him to the cross, and they're like, what? (laughs) how this happened
1: very good so then he gets to the cross he's up on the cross and then there's this this very mysterious verse about darkness following falling over the earth and Mm -hmm. i'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that if that's real darkness or what's going on there
0: yeah, just one, one little comment there. When they sure. put him on the cross, you notice that it, that when they prepare to put him on the cross, we have no mention in the gospels anywhere of nails. The only reason we realize that he was nailed to the cross is in later documents. For example, when mm. Thomas inspects him, we find that there are nail marks, um, but there's no, there's no comment about that as they put him on the cross. Okay, so darkness. So the darkness fell from about 10, when we look at the hours in in Luke and Matthew, Uh, the 6th to the ninth Jewish hour from approximately 10 a.m. to approximately 2 p.m. So what was this? Well, um, it probably really was darkness. And, you know, the thing of it is, if you've ever been in a very dark storm or hailstorm or something like that, you see uh, that you can get almost uh, nighttime during the day. And it wasn't an eclipse because there was no eclipse on this day and there couldn't have been an eclipse anyway because of the position of the the moon during Passover. So it wasn't an eclipse. But uh, let me give you this, on May 19th in 1780, right in the middle of the Revolutionary War, here in New England, there was a dark day. And I'm gonna read what it says. It says, the darkness blotted out the sun, the gloom was so deep the candles were required from noon. Cows thinking the sun had set came home from their pastures birds stopped chirping and frogs began to croak. The next day, May 20th, the day came out as usual. These things are not unknown. And we see see reports of these things in ancient history, like the Roman uh, historian Paulus Orosius uh, reports um, a volcanic eruption right around the time of the Day of the Cross, which could have Put you know detritus up in the air and darkened it. So there really is darkness, and 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 uh, it's not an eclipse, and it's not it's not unprecedented. It's just we. I believe the gospels because they're so accurate about everything else that when they report something that seems improbable, I go with it because I'm like Sherlock Holmes. Eliminate the impossible. Whatever is left, however improbable, must be the truth.
2: Okay, so Jesus is up on the cross at this point. What are the priests doing? Like, do we know what the priests are doing?
0: Yeah, so the pre, well, the priests back of the temple at 1 p.m. start slaughtering the Passover lambs. Josephus, who was a near contemporary of Jesus, said that he observed 256,500 lambs slaughtered in one Passover. So we're looking at about a quarter of a million lambs getting slaughtered from 1 p.m. Um, it's already dark on the cross until 4 p.m. They got to finish by 4 p.m. because they got to leave two hours for people to get home and roast their lambs, even for the latecomers. So, so what? What think about what's going on with these priests? They had to slaughter. Thousands of lambs per hour per minute, really, per hour. And so, so what they would do is that everyone would show up. You thought Costco was bad. Everyone showed up and (laughs) it was a huge line, and everybody had their lamb ready to go. They get up, get their turn, they slip the lamb slope, they turn it upside down. The police catch it, the the police, the priests catch the blood. They do a bucket brigade with the blood, you know, handing it hand over hand over hand over hand until it gets to the altar, slapping it on the altar. And meanwhile, the guy who's got his lamb is quickly flaying it and taking its skin off. And then what he does is he puts two um, staves of wood through the body of the lamb, one from the mouth to the bottom and the other from arm to arm. And so every single person who took his Passover lamb away from the temple as Jesus was hanging on the cross, took with him a crucified lamb, a lamb stuck on a cross and so so that's what they're doing while the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world is dying on the cross not at all far you hear the screams of death of a quarter of a million innocent lambs whose sacrifice will not in any way be effective for atonement
1: that's so powerful to to think about that while they were killing the type or the shadow there in the temple uh the real lamb of god was was hanging on the cross And, um, all right, let's, let's, I also want people to understand like the quickness of all of these things, because the, the big deadline is sundown that all of these things have to be done before the Sabbath begins at sundown. So they need to have the lambs killed and, and, and roasted before then, but then there's another series of events that have to hurry up. And that is the death of Jesus and his, and his
0: burial. burial. So, right. let's so, all the things that happen with Jesus being given the sour wine, uh, he, he, he consigns his mother Mary into the care of his favorite friend on earth, the disciple John. Um, his, uh, they're dividing his uh, clothes, casting by lots. All these things happen uh, from about 7 a.m. until about 1, 1 p.m. He dies at about 1 p.m. in the darkness. He dies in the darkness. He says, he said, it is, it is he takes the last wine and it is finished. And now he's hanging on the cross dead from 2 p.m. onward. The sun is going to go down at just about 5 p.m. So his friends, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, need to hasten over to the high priest and say, you know, we want to take his body down. Now, why do they agree to that? They agree to it because You know, uh, Deuteronomy says, Any man who hangs upon a tree is cursed, and they don't want him hanging on the tree, being cursed, and thereby cursing the land, cursing the Passover, polluting the Passover while he's doing it. So they say, Yeah, sure, whatever, take him. But Pilate wants to make sure he's really dead, so he goes to check whether his bone, whether, you know, he he breaks the bones of the other thieves on the cross who are hanging with him. But the Roman soldiers inspect him and find out, No, he's really dead. And So uh, they they take him down from the cross and they take him to uh, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, which has to be nearby. And they hastily stuff him into the tomb because there isn't time. And they roll the stone over there because they want to keep him pure, but they haven't had the time to really anoint his body, which apparently was the custom of things at the time. Think about it. It's kind of interesting. The Egyptians mummified bodies. Joseph, the patriarch, was mummified. There's a way of treating the bodies, which which is respectful. They don't have the time to do it. And also think of this. Joseph and Nicodemus are willing to pollute themselves so they can't celebrate the Passover because they're touching a dead body. Wow! And so, because they're touching the dead body, they won't be pure for the for, for the for the holiday.
1: Wow, that's really powerful. I never thought about that before. So then, the sun sets at around six o'clock. S- Sabbath begins. Passover begins, and everyone is now settling into their home for the pe- the Passover meal. Um, then we have Saturday. So is mm-hmm. everything quiet on Saturday?
0: Well, it's not, because uh, what happens is on on Saturday, uh, The so, so the, the Sanhedrin and the Jews celebrate their Passover uh, dinner on Friday night, and they're probably sitting around enjoying themselves very smug, well, we took care of that rascal. But then on Saturday, when they're supposed to be doing nothing but resting, not even preparing any food, it suddenly dawns on them, wait a minute, is there some kind of a prophecy about him rising in the third day? If his disciples steal his body, that that lie is going to get around. So they go to, to, to pilot and they say, um, you know, we want, we want you to put a guard over the tomb. Well, now the Jews are not allowed to do any kind of work on this on, 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 Saturday. So I don't know about you, but would you call, uh, going and lobbying the governor and, and posting, um, uh, military guard work? I think I would people get paid for that. So um, they're breaking the Sabbath. These holier-than-thou people who are so mad at Jesus for breaking the Sabbath and, and, and doing things like that, they do it. But the followers of Jesus don't do it. They're very, very anxious to go. The women are very anxious to go and take care of his body and treat it properly and everything, but they don't. They wait until Sunday morning when the sun comes up when the Sabbath is over. And just one thing about the Sabbath, you know, we, sometimes people get confused about Jesus prophesying that he'd be in the tomb for three days and three nights. And we go, how is it three days and three nights? That was my question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If he, if he dies on, well, okay. So he dies on Friday afternoon. He's rises on Sunday morning. Let's, this is again, a question of timekeeping. Let's suppose you have three buckets and one bucket is Friday and you put four cups of water in the Friday bucket. And the next bucket is Saturday, and you put twenty-four cups of water in the Saturday bucket. And the next bucket is Sunday, and you put twelve buckets, twelve cups of water in the Sunday bucket. How many buckets of water do you have? Three. Three. So, from the from from the the way of language, the way of thinking of Jews in the first century, a day and a night is a day. Any part of a day is a day and a night. So they've got three buckets: Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And in part of each of those days. Jesus is in the tomb. And so that's completely, you might think, oh, you're stretching it. No, no, no. That is completely consistent with the linguistic customs of not only the Jews in the first century, but in many other languages too. So that's, that's how we get the three days. Jesus is perfectly correct using his language. You know, so we don't want to read history backwards or take revenge on history by trying to impose upon people of a former time how we speak or think.
1: That's true. And and that can be we can be sometimes susceptible to that in our modern context of thinking the whole world think, it ha, it thinks the way that we do. And we have
2: always thought. Yeah. yeah.
1: So we're going to just kind of wrap this up with you, Jim. We're going to go really quick through the Sunday events. Um, early sunrise. I want to. Really point out this, this first bullet point on the slide here, that it was the first day of the Feast of First Fruits. Talk to us about the importance of Jesus rising from the dead on the Feast of First
0: Fruits. Well, he's the first fruit of the resurrection. He's the first resurrected one. He's the first fruit of the kingdom of God. He's the first person ever to rise from the dead who will never die, uh, die in a mortal in a physical way again. Lazarus was raised, but he died again. But Jesus, uh, Jesus rose and is eternally alive, both in body and in spirit, forever theanthropos, the God-man. So he is the first fruits of the promise of God, of the, coming, of the coming kingdom. And it happened on the day of first fruits.
1: That's just an amazing thing that I don't think many of us are aware of, that that, that Jewish holiday um, had significance, and that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Passover actually lasts a week, which yep. is going to be an important point here in a minute. But I want to point out that sunrise that day happens at around 530 in the morning. And we have the sunrise happening. The women are coming before the sunrise. They set out for the tomb. And then we have the start having the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And we have them kind of summarized here on on the screen. But I think what's what I want to skip to, if we can, is the the appearance to the apostles to the 10. Um, he, he appears um, in the upper room, but Thomas isn't there. Right. And that is in the evening of Sunday. But then the appearance to Thomas comes a week later, and that's actually at the end of Passover. So right. this is this is an important timeline because Passover is still happening and Jesus is making these appearances, but this time Thomas is, is present. And Jim, I love the character of Thomas. He's one of my favorite characters in, in scripture because and he gets a bad rap, I think, because, um, he's called doubting Thomas, which I really don't like that that phraseology over him. And, and this is described in John 20 where Jesus appears to the, the, the remaining disciples minus Judas and Thomas on Sunday night. But then he appears to Thomas the next week, some days later. And, and what's important about that is that Thomas needs evidence. He he wants to, to put his hands in Jesus hands and, and, and his side and, You know, people like you and I, Jim, we we tend to like and and appreciate a more evidence based approach to faith. Um, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about about Thomas and his need for evidence and and some of the themes that we've talked about here tonight.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that here's the thing. I really don't like the, the Doubting Thomas moniker because I don't think Thomas was, in fact, any more doubting than anybody else. In fact, I believe it's the opposite. I think Thomas had greater faith than most of the other disciples. Remember, when they're heading toward Jerusalem, uh, they're saying, Master, don't you know they're trying to kill you? And he says, yeah, I'm going anyway. And Thomas says, OK, let's go with him and die together. Right. So Th- Thomas is very, very devoted. And notice that on that this Monday night, when he appears to uh, the, uh, the 10 plus Thomas, thomas doesn't really ask for any more evidence than they got right the first time that jesus appears they go, he go they think he's a ghost he goes no look i'm a ghost i'm a, see i'm flesh and bones as you are have you got any fish and he eats the fish so, right. so 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 that he gives them the same evidence thomas didn't have that evidence and he's not asking for anything more plus the fact that i think we can look in his, look into his language and maybe understand something a little different he says unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand to his side, I will never believe. Okay. Does that, does, does Thomas really mean that? Or is he just very emotional about all this? Right. Is he really, can we just translate it as saying you guys saw him? I need to see him. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. But I'll tell you what, when he does see him, he does let him believe. I don't think he actually does. Yeah, he doesn't. jesus says put your finger here and see my hands and thomas doesn't do it he falls down and says my lord and my god he makes the most important statement one of the most important statements in all of scripture by acknowledging that jesus is lord and god and jesus says have you believed because you've seen me he didn't say have you believed because you touched me right apparently he didn't and by the way this is why we know he was nailed because we see the reference to the nail marks. Otherwise we don't see it in the, in the, in the crucifixion story.
1: Again, I want to make sure that people get connected to you and your books on Amazon. If you're fascinated by Jim's kind of approach, I want to commend to you his book, the history of Jesus, the life and times of the son of man. That's where we kind of walked through some of that. And you can uh, check that out on Amazon, but he has a lot of books on Amazon. Like, I think, don't you have a book on every book of the Bible?
0: Except for Psalms and uh, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. But Okay. Uh, all the right. Books.
1: So there's, if you're studying through a book, you can go there and they're easy to download. You can also buy paperbacks. You can go visit his website, the Bible History Guy. You can follow him on social media. And um, Jim, it's just been an awesome privilege. Thank you for sharing yes, all thank of your... You. Your knowledge and your study with us—it's so much good information. Yeah, like
2: being, makes you really think about you know oh, how quick did things happen at night and yeah. oh my gosh you know this happened and then that happened yeah all the details yeah that we kind
1: of gloss over yeah and so I'm so glad to share your work with um our our podcast listeners because um you're just such a treasure and I wanted to to expose you to people so that they can. Find out about your important work. So, thank you so much, Jim.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Krista.
1: All right, it's been great to have you here. See you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye. Yeah. So, Jim might be uh, restarting his old Sunday school class, which would be awesome, and we can uh-huh. promote that on the show too. Do on he- Zoom. Yeah, he's going to be Zoom man. So uh, that's good. So, hopefully, that that kind of answered some of your questions about the chronology. Yes, because I
2: was like, whoa. I didn't know all of this or that all of that happened. And
1: I don't, oh, think- we could have sat here and talk yeah. for three more
2: hours. Yeah. And he, I think he could have talked <laughs> easily for three more hours. Um, let's look at some comments. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Laura says, mind blowing to think of how quickly this all happened and all overnight. Yes. I know. Right. Yes. And,
1: but when you, you don't think about it when you're reading the individual gospel accounts, but Jim has just this way of lining it all up. And you're like, Whoa. Yeah. There was this and this and this. And Aren't those time markers helpful? Yes. He gets those from software that, you know, you can do these calendar alignments and then you can work back like when the sunrise happened in Jerusalem in this year and it's amazing. It just it just builds it so much out like oh these are this is real history. These are real times and places. I love that.
2: Amy says this has been tremendous information. No idea we could know this type of detail. Yes, right. Then Kimba says, "I'm fascinated. I could listen for three
1: more hours." <laughs> See, yeah. yeah, it's it it really is fascinating. And we'll have Jim on maybe um, for Christmas and do another timeline show. Oh wow! Because his stuff on Christmas is equally fascinating, and so uh, I just love how Jim is so committed mm-hmm. to Scripture. As being error free. And I often will email him when I get stuck on a Bible difficulty or what seems like a contradiction. He's worked it out. Mm. He, he's like an encyclopedia of, of information. So uh, he's a wonderful resource. So go follow Jim and uh, start interacting with him. If you have questions about Bible difficulties, chances are he, he, has, he has something that he's written because he's literally written on almost every book of the Bible. It's amazing.
2: Out of control.
1: Yeah. So good. All, right, All right. Are we ready for the tweet of the week?
2: Yes. It's the tweet of the week. Hey!
1: <laughs> we really should have like a tweet of the week opening like coronavirus edition. Yeah. Oh, okay. so this week's tweet of the week is from some no name dude that I don't have any idea who he is, but he has a tweet that caught my attention. Baptist church members given five hundred dollar tickets for listening to church service in their cars. This is not the tweet that you said you were going to be (laughs) a (laughs) radio. This is not
2: the tweet I was ready for. Oh, there it is.
1: (laughs) So this was an interesting Thing that caught my attention because there's been some stories in the news um about churches and some pastors you know there's there's we're kind of a little bit divided right now as as christians of do we stay home is that what loving our neighbor looks like mm-hmm. or is like jesus over everything let's meet Let's not make any changes. Can we have
2: like some meat in the middle, like Jesus plus wisdom? Yeah, Jesus plus wisdom. Yeah,
1: you know. Yeah. So love plus sound reasoning and sound mind. So you know, getting all those. uh, What was that scripture we looked at a few weeks ago? Uh, Second Timothy one seven or something. You know, something to that effect. So um, I kind of researched what he was linking to here, and there's a local news story. So this this newspaper article looks uh, very much like a small town newspaper. I don't know. It's probably run by two people in their garage. But um, what happened was that this church met in uh, a drive-through church setting, and they were listening to the sermon on their radios. Mm -hmm. So sort of like going to a drive-in movie theater (laughs) type of experience. So they they were pulling up, and they were listening to the sermon on the car Radio, and the police came, gave him a warning, and then anyone who didn't leave got a five hundred dollar ticket. Now, supposedly, this same church is, according to this article, is going to be having Easter services tomorrow. I wonder how many people show up and get tickets again. But in my county this week, the county where we live, um, they made an announcement specifically about these drive-through churches um that you would get a $1000 fine for gathering as a drive-through church in our county. And um so I have questions. Yes. I have many questions about this. So I just I'm so conflicted about it because I get the the importance of being careful and Loving our neighbor and 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 loving our families and trying not to bring, you know, the virus and sickness home. I think I'm totally down for that. Like we need to be doing that. But I don't understand is what's the difference between a drive through church listening to the radio, and going to Sonic or McDonald's or McDonald's. Yeah, and and you know if you could sit in the Sonic drive through in those little stalls and get some chicken nuggets. Somebody's bringing you the food and you're sitting there listening to your radio. I don't see the functional difference. Well, I
2: think the question is who's determining what's essential.
1: Exactly.
2: You know, like, yeah, we can, we can do the exact same thing and not be ticketed for it because it's not a church service. So is there some kind of low key like tag on churches, but for me, it's more of what's essential, who's determining what's essential and saying that I can or cannot do what's essential to them.
1: Yeah. And and so, like we were out shopping today, we were looking at what was open. Mm-hmm. Home Depot was open. Mm-hmm. Uh Bevmo was open. Bevmo was open. What what is Bevmo? People don't know.
2: BevMo is, um, like the corporate version, like it's the big liquor store and yeah, they have things that are not liquor, but yeah, it's, it's like the big time liquor store. It's like going to to Costco for liquor.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It, it, yeah. Like the bath bath and body works of, of liquor.
2: Yeah. But I mean, they, they have all kinds of things. They have like, um, wines and you know what?
1: Google BevMo.
2: You can find out what, what yeah. BevMo is. But BevMo
1: about, is open. To so that, a that's an essential service, according to somebody. Maybe because they serve soda I don't
2: know. You know? I don't know. But then, like, Best Buy was open. So yeah, Best com- Buy was computer open. Computer stuff is, essential. You know, essential.
1: Um Planned essential. Par- many Planned Parenthoods are still open. Mm-hmm. I actually saw that
2: in Texas they closed Planned Parenthood and then a judge overturned that.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure where people in Texas.
0: Where are we at with that? I don't don't know where y'all But maybe we could say like
1: 90 to 95% of Planned Parenthoods are open. But 90 to 95% of churches are closed closed because they're non-essential. And so my question is, is who's defining what's essential? Because couldn't churches, isn't there a way that they could meet and still be safe? Yes. Like, could they meet and honor the six feet rule and have, and control how many people come into the service. Mm -hmm. Could they wear masks? Could everybody
2: meet in their car and they have like a big screen or something like that. And they project the service onto that. Right. Yeah.
1: And so it's, and I don't know how it works in mosques and and synagogues and all of that, but so churches, I don't want to say are being singled out because they're in our County, at least they're making it, $1,000 fine for any house of worship to gather. But it does seem a little bit singled out to me for Christians because drive-through churches were specifically mentioned in the county order. And I'm, uh, I'm confused (laughs) because look, I want people to be safe. I'm not suggesting the coronavirus is a, is a conspiracy that it's not real. People really are getting sick. People really are dying. This is real. Now, I have questions about some of the numbers, but that's a, that's a different conversation. But my question is, is, is there a, who's determining what is essential and where is this all leading? Because here, here's my theory. This is a theory. I'm not saying this is a fact. I'm trying this on. It seems to me that the, there's a there's a there's a worldview assumption that underlies what is being worth being told is essential. the food is essential, alcohol is essential going to Best Buy is essential going to home depot is essential fixing my house. These are all things in the physical world. but if something is good for my soul, like going to church um That is somehow deemed non-essential and inherently not safe. My question is, why? Why couldn't we meet safely in a public assembly? I mean, we're going down to Walmart and there's 2,000 people in Walmart. And yes, we're required to wear masks now in our county. We can't leave the house without a mask. And that's fine. but. Couldn't we have CDC practices in place and still allow houses of worship to meet? My question is, is this seems a little bit like singling out religious people. And I'm wondering if there isn't a worldview assumption of naturalism behind that. Like, oh, you could just you could just live stream like if you want to do that little prayer thing, just just live stream.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I I don't know. I lie on the fence because no, I don't want to get sick. No, I don't want anybody in my family to get sick. You know, so there's that. I think the bigger issue than you know, just right now in like, oh, they're, you know, they're not letting us, you know, meet for worship is, well, what's going to happen in six months from now? You know, what's going to happen when churches or places of worship in general Um, despite, you know, whether they're a Christian or not, when an ordinance comes and says, well, for safety reasons, you can't meet, you can no longer meet. I'm wondering if we are really looking forward enough, you know, it's inconvenient right now, but we're making do, but if we are making do right now, are we in some kind of way, setting a precedent and a tone for what we'll make do with? And but for how long, you know, well, or are in, in we the, saying the county order, that this is going to be OK forever, because in
1: the county order, it specifically says indefinitely. There's not even like a review date that is there. And and some people are jumping in the conversation, which is great. Uh, Laura says in that article, if I remember right, the pastor told the mayor they would meet drive in style despite the ordinance against it. So at that point, it's defiance. Yes, but. To me, the car scenario still fits within the CDC guidelines. You can go through the drive-through and get food. Mm-hmm. So how does how is the, that any different? How is that functionally any different? Yes, we can go to the store if we stay six feet apart and they limit how many people come into the building. Why not have equality under the law? This is my question because I feel like houses of worship are not being treated equally under the law and it they're just arbitrarily saying what is essential and what's not and there are some things that quite frankly that we're calling essential that I'm like I'm starting to feel like by what standard is this essential yeah. going to Bevmo like really yeah <laughs> really yeah i don't know i have questions um but And I'm going to make a further point about Laura's point here, because there is this tension between Romans 13. I'm seeing a lot of Christians on social media saying, oh, we should obey the government, obey the government, obey the government. Yes. Obey the government. Romans 13. Obey the government. Even if it's corrupt. Even if there are silly laws. We're supposed to obey the government. And. And. In addition to Romans 13, there's Acts 4. Sometimes we are to disobey the government, but we have to think sober-mindedly about what those situations are when we are to disobey the government, when it comes to preaching the gospel, and I would say when it comes to public assembly. Um, And I get the temporary nature of it. Like If we're going to temporarily not meet, I'm okay with that. But I think it should be voluntary. Like, there seems to be an inequity under the law for houses of worship, and that's what I'm, I'm just struggling. I can I, I'm, that. I'm to- I also
2: think though that if if it is voluntary there should be mandatory things that are in place for you to voluntarily meet. So if you're going to voluntarily meet, you need to stay six feet apart. You need to wear your mask. You need to do all those things because it'll be like the church in Washington where like 14 or whatever, however many people, you know, got the disease and some of them died and all yes. that. But to me, that didn't even have to happen.
1: But I, they also weren't practicing the CDC that's standards. That's what i saying. So yeah. if,
2: if you're going to voluntarily Step into a dangerous situation, that's cool for you. But we're going to put some guidelines onto sure. your voluntary situation sure. and say that it's mandatory that you wear a mask and stay so many feet apart because everybody don't need to get sick. Like, now, I don't I, know who you are. And I'm not suggesting that I mean? we
1: just willy nilly continue with life as before. Yeah. But could, it seems to me like there is a bit of inequity. Like I can't, I was going back to the drive through car thing. I don't see any functional difference between going to a drive through church and going to Sonic. Mm-hmm. Except one, the government or whoever, the local officials have said one is essential and one is non-essential. So my question is, is what, if any, worldview assumptions are underlying that? And I think for me, I'm not comfortable with the precedent that it's setting because it's it's, it's it's saying, well, Christians, if you want to meet and do your thing, go virtually. But at what point are they going to come back to us potentially and say, you know what? People need bandwidth for essential services. So we don't want churches taking up bandwidth on the internet for live streaming. So you need to stop live streaming your services or you need to keep your live services to 15 minutes so that people who need essential services can use the bandwidth. Too much bandwidth is being used up by Christians, by churches, live streaming. See, this is how this could logically play out.
2: And that's what I'm saying. It's like we are we really cognizant of what the long term effects of this could be? Yeah. You know, we can't just jump on you know, the bandwagon, because it it seems okay today without looking at the ramifications of what that means for, you know, tomorrow or six months from now or a year from now. And again, this is
1: indefinitely Mm -hmm. in our county. So the government has no need to come back and rewrite these rules. There's they could just they we woke up one morning and going to drive through church was now a thousand dollar fine. Well, why? I can go through the drive-through. Why is this suddenly a thousand dollar fine? Um, and okay, now I'm going to go down like a little bit, even more of a controversial
2: road. And we're going to go down
1: quickly. Okay. (laughs) We're going to, you know, all right. Oh, it's late. All right. And then I won't do it. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, okay. I have this other concern that, that many evangelicals are just so quickly embracing this whole idea of virtual church. Mm Mm-hmm. Which again, I'm okay if it's only temporary, but we have no guarantee that it is temporary. But this isn't because of coronavirus. Like people have been
2: online churching it for years, yeah. And so I think that that's a whole nother argument of like, how comfortable are we with our comfortability? And so if it's easier for me to watch, you know, t- church. And on, on the screen, I don't have to get up. I don't have to get the kids but ready. screen
1: to screen is not the same as face to face. But I
2: don't know that we can say, look what coronavirus is no, doing. No, I agree. But- I would say how comfortable. And again, like to me, this talks about the long term. How comfortable are we with our comfortability yeah. at, at on some level? And it's like, you know, there was a reason why the church gathered and they gathered physically. And yet I feel like especially the American church has taken many steps away from that. So it doesn't feel so odd for us to say, oh, we'll just everybody just live stream church. But in Zambia, that's not a thing. Like when when I've been in Zambia, you see people
1: walking in the dirt, walking to go to church. And And so this is. And you see persecuted Christians risking mm-hmm. to be together. And I think that the precedent for face-to-face fellowship is such a long and deep tradition in Christianity. I am not prepared to just lay down and let everything go to virtual church and be okay. My second, this, kind of the second point I want to make about this is this very American, where we have this idea where we're just going to watch our pastor on the screen, give a sermon. And it's, we we shifted you know in in many areas of tr- protestantism to kind of more of an entertainment model mm-hmm. where the people are up on the stage the worship team and the pastor but now that's easy to shift into the virtual r- world but if you go into a sacramental tradition anglicans catholics orthodox those people, because they can't gather together, can't really participate in the sacraments. And that has a long history. And I, I heard Dr. What's his name? Fauci, the Trump's guy that is at the press She's conferences. Back. This week, he makes a statement. We should never shake hands again as a culture. I could personally be on board with that because I don't know if everybody
2: washed their hands. You're a germaphobe. That
1: is true, too. But I don't if you can. We but, just elbow. But but that is part of the Christian tradition is getting together and greeting one another. And can, and can
2: the Christian tradition also be, can we wash our hands? Jesus plus wisdom.
1: <laughs> Look at some
2: um, comments. All right. Kimba says it's just a power play. I'm sure all Christians will have to register at some point to watch so that, so they can know where our all Christians are too. I believe that that's not just for Christians. I believe And, you know, sometimes I can jump on a conspiracy theory, but yes, I think like things like registering your phone number at Vons or your, your local grocery store, I think it's, it's a thing of like, how much did you buy? Did you buy one pack of meat or two? If you bought one, one toilet paper, you can't go to another store and buy toilet paper. Where are the Christians? You know Yeah. I kind of see that. Yeah. Um, Laura says, I agree, Krista. It's very unfair to say no drive in church when you can drive in or drive through endless fast food places. Yes. I'm wondering if underground churches will become a thing in the U S if this goes on much longer. I think so. I think even if this doesn't go on much longer, the United States has not seen, they just don't know. (laughs) So yes, I do think that a time is coming where, um, Underground churches will be a thing. I think that persecution will be a thing. I don't know why Americans kinda have this air about themselves, like like persecution ain't gonna come to us. Like we we above that. Like, no, people, like don't let your comfortable, like this air of comfortability or this like I like my things and I'm gonna have my things. Don't let it get to you because
1: don't be fooled. It is coming. It will reach every part of the earth. Um but I think that the- what I'm trying to suggest, and, and again, this is just my perspective and, and I'm working through right now, is I'm not ready to say that people should just abandon meeting and just go virtual. That's the same functional equivalent. I don't think it is the same functional equivalent. No, it's not. And I don't think that Christians should be so quick to roll over for that. And now, I temporarily, all... yes. I understand it.
2: But are we aware of what the of the long, haul? exactly like what precedent we're setting up? Exactly. What gets me and I mean, God bless some people. But <laughs> when it's like, you know, we're just it's like they they make an excuse for the virtual church. Like, you know, this is just our time to to, you know, reach more people. Now that we're online, we're just going to reach more people. And that can be true. But there is also something to being a body together. Exactly. There's something to community. There's something to. And community is not the
1: same face, you know, image to image. Yeah. yeah, Because Zoom is not real community. Like
2: it's that it is that that being with one another. But we've had. With washed hands in the name of Jesus.
1: We already have an established relationship that underlies the virtual experience. Mm -hmm. We and. it's just, it's hard for me to imagine how we would walk in life together in a meaningful way, just meeting on Zoom for one hour or all of us meeting on on YouTube live stream and watching our pastor from his living room. Like to me, those are not the same things. It's
2: already a precedent that's been set up. And so that's why I think that people are okay with it because it's been set up. We're the church and we're the ones who started it.
1: You know I, I, I mean? hear you, but I'm just I, I I hear what you're saying. I'm just expressing the question and the concern of: Are we thinking ahead? Where are we going? And let's live in the reality that these changes are indefinite, I and, completely, and agree. we don't know. Like, let's not just roll over for this, you know. And meeting together does matter. Mm-hmm. Meeting in person does matter. Being in life with people matters yes. as a Christian. It is not an optional extra thing that we do. Now, temporarily, you know, we've been enjoying the mass um at the Anglican Church through the last several weeks of quarantine. It's been a blessing. We've been worshiping together as a family, but that's not a substitute for real face-to-face relationship mm-hmm. and fellowship. Okay, final words here.
2: I think way too many people are giving in to everything because they say, well, we knew this is how it's going to be. And nobody wants to stand up for anything. What if they did during that? What if they did that during Nazi times?
1: Mm. Okay. Mm. We ran long. Thank you for staying yes. with us. Yeah. So uh, check out the show notes from past shows. Be sure to subscribe to our website at all You can sign up there for uh, the show notes that we send out each week. And yeah, um, I guess that's it. Share the show. Share Good the show. show. Like Share the, the sh- show. Yes. We will see you next week. God bless. We're going to
2: recuperate from Costco.
1: Yes. Bye.